Shit Platypus Says, episode 32, a special edition for Montez Press Radio. Hello. Hi. I actually can't can't remember something I really disliked as of late. Uh, the inauguration. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. I was yeah, going to say, I... <laughs> Uh, but should we? I mean, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Excuse me. Well, <laughs> not out of fear or paranoia, but you know, I think it's unfair to treat any of the performances at the inauguration as performances. Um, I guess I would say maybe serious art or objects of critique. But the, it, I, I guess mean, the there whole... was the youth, like the national laureate, the poet laureate woman i mean it was poetry and yeah it was like lady gaga and garth brooks i mean it's just like high kitsch with lady yeah. gaga and jennifer lopez no lady gaga had like a turtle a brass turtle dove on her dress as well holding an olive leaf to you know to yeah. heal the country. We're gonna My heal favorite, the country. We're gonna heal the soul of America with Garth Brooks. My favorite was Garth Brooks and like came out. Would you sing Amazing Grace, right? I think he's saying Amazing Grace. Yeah. Somebody check this. Fact checked. Um anyway, he's like singing and he delivers it in a very heartfelt way. And then he is trying to leave and he runs into a lot of people that he wants to shake hands or want to shake hands with him. So he's like delayed. And the person that's introducing the next performer or whatever is like, oh uh doesn't that remind you of and then garth brooks tries to leave again so he interrupts the ceremony and then he's like okay doesn't that remind you of when barack obama sang amazing rendition of amazing grace it was so awkward guys it was so awkward it oh, was so cringe awkward. cringe it cringe was so i told you that i I've, I've seen the pictures of it i've seen the pictures of the inauguration but i I haven't watched it, and I've in my head I've already put sound to the pictures, and I'm I'm done. I don't think I need to. Yeah. I think the cringiest thing for me was watching the CNN anchors just lose their shit, being overjoyed. I think one of them said like Lady Gaga pointed at the flag, and I just wanted to cry because it symbolizes something so great. I'm like, bitch, you're a news anchor. Like, you know, they're. I mean, pictures. I'm for I'm all for Lady Gaga serenading the United States of America, the 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 flag of America. You know, like I have no problem with that. When she did that half time show, was it the Pepsi halftime, Coca Cola, one oh, of them? Yeah. It was like America, but it was like Lady Gaga America, and I was into it. J Lo did the Jennifer Lopez did the halftime show at the Super yeah. Bowl last year. It was some crazy with shit. Shakira, which Shakira yeah. shared it. It was like oh, yeah, women Latin power. <laughs> Um, yeah, Our listeners yeah. know that Pam is Latinx, so she's allowed to do this stuff. <laughs> Bitch, I would never call myself that. Like, nobody in Latin America is like, Latinx. <laughs> so I know. I only no say sense. that because I'm in academia. <laughs> but I've seen the polls that, like, no Latino people want to identify as Latinx. Like, they hate, like, they hate the term. The people don't want to call themselves that. <laughs> for the listeners, Allison was just kidding. I am like super white. Yeah, she's like you know, I don't, I don't know what she's talking about. She's, she's uh, trying to bamboozle you, uh, listeners out there. <laughs> Thank you.
is Pamela Nogales. And we are here today with Alison Hewitt Ward of Cesura Online Magazine. She joins me and my co-host Sophia Freeman in this special episode of SPS. We discuss Joe Biden's inauguration and the relationship between art and the capitalist state. Professional creative artists are facing unemployment rates well above the national average. We discuss the proposals for a WPA-style intervention, a Ministry of Culture, or a White House Office for Culture. What are these different proposals about? In the second half, we consider the artist Brad Trammell and his attempt to reinterpret liberal cringe into meme art. Is this real? I don't know. Maybe. All of the images that we reference today will be up on the Caesura website. SPS is a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society. You can learn more about Platypus by going to platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Tune in. All right. Actually, this so, is a good segue into art in the yeah, state. Um, yeah. Even though I think obviously the inauguration falls well below the the level of art, but I think the beginning of the art in the state discussion, I guess, it was mass it, spectacle. It, mm-hmm. yeah. it was a mass spectacle. I can take it as a whole. It. it is a thing. First of all, Garth Brooks has like made it. You know, he's like he's like big times. He's like the accepted country singer like the one that everyone like remembers even if you don't listen to country music so yeah but obviously there was some, some like aesthetic gesture to rural america even though joe biden couldn't even pronounce rural uh no no shade but like bro had some problems in his speech and everybody knew it everybody knew it and i'm just saying uh his brain his brain no no his heart yeah. uh yeah uh, what were you saying about the inauguration, though? A spectacle. It, it was a thing that happened, like, as a whole, not just mm-hmm. the performances, I guess I was saying, Allison, because not just the performances, but, like, the whole thing, the, the whole, you know, it was, like, the church were in the front and stuff, and, like, Biden, like, you know, he did a little, little nod, and, like, there was, like, a whole moment of formation with Barack mm-hmm. Obama and, like, Bush, that, you know, all of them Bush. were there having hugs. It was a very heartwarming gathering of war criminals. <laughs> um, it, it was really great and I love that an artist was represented on the inauguration stage in the form of George W. Bush and his <laughs> art career uh, and we should oh, also yeah. remember that for I think maybe the first time the son of a U.S. president is a serious artist Hunter Biden now has gallery mm. representation but, so artists are really coming up in this administration. But you know what some of some of George Bush's paintings I don't know mm-hmm. Bro has talent, dog. They're Just a lot better it. than they're better than better Hunter, Hunter Biden. Just yeah. face it. Yeah. So I guess what you're saying, Allison, is that this this moment under Biden is producing some some good artists. It really, truly, the greatest we've ever seen represented in in the halls of the Capitol. But to draw a comparison and to get a little more serious, so Jerry Saltz, Pulitzer-winning art critic, uh, famously said at the start of the Trump presidency, that it was going to produce great art, uh, that people were going to suffer so much and 
through that suffering would come great art. I would hope that Jerry Saltz knows that he's catastrophically wrong about that. Uh, Art dealing with the Trump presidency was probably the worst art that I've seen. I know that you wrote an article, Alison, entitled R.I.P. Trump Art. You wrote in 2020, right? Yes, so long ago. And I was a little premature because it was after Biden was elected, but it was before the most intense moment of fear that Trump was going to stage a coup and steal the presidency and artists and critics and kind of the liberal art world really went hard on the anti-Trump art. So I was a little premature, but I think now I can finally safely say RIP Trump art. It was truly awful. It was cosplaying resistance. It was pretending that there's a threat of Franco in the form of Trump in the hopes that somebody could make a Guernica out of it. There have been no Guernicas in the past four years. So the question becomes what happens under Biden? And Mm. artists have already picked up on his calls to quote unquote, heal the country. And they're making the argument- Heal the soul of the nation. Yes. They're making the argument that artists will be critical for that. And for that reason, there should be a secretary of arts and culture at the cabinet level. I was just reading about how in uh, 2017, when Trump responded to the Charlottesville rally. And you had people, and I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis and the white nationalists, because they should be condemned totally. But you had many people in that group other than neo-Nazis and white nationalists, okay? And the press has treated them absolutely unfairly. There was this mass walkout. The President's Committee on the Arts and the Humanities resigned en masse. And these are the people that liaise basically with the NEA and do like economic policy recommendations for the arts. I mean, this is like the kind of body that would have had uh, I guess the capacity to fight anyway, uh, in an organized way for artists' employments. So they walked out, and then Trump like didn't renew, uh, just let it let it expire. He decided that he was not going to renew the executive order for the President's Committee on the Arts and the Humanities. You know, like now all these people that are calling for exactly that and maybe something with more influence, but that I mean, you know, like. I'm having somebody in the state, somebody who liaises on policy, employment for the arts and all of this stuff, right? I mean, that's the call by, uh, what's his name, Allison, the New York Times guy? Jason Farrago, who made the argument that we should get mm-hmm. into a little bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. they they destroyed the possibility of having an, any kind of arts and culture conversation at the federal level by resigning, which, you know, we can say that they was dumb that was that was a very stupid strategy it was was, i was going to be a little more generous and say they did it on principle but it was strategically very stupid so now there was no such body and the arts got hit really hard by the pandemic largely Mm -hmm. because arts workers tend to be precarious workers they tend to be gig workers a lot of unemployment systems don't work for, say, an actor who had a gig that no longer exists because Broadway shut down. We can start with what he doesn't want. He doesn't want a Department of Culture. He doesn't want, you know, a ministry. He thinks that that's going to be extra bureaucracy. It's going to be bureaucratic. And there's no real justification for it because the federal budget for the National Endowments for the Arts is like 0.004 of the federal budget, right? So there's no 
uh, it does, there's no justification for like a ministry of culture. And he instead wants somebody like this body that I guess, I guess I'm saying was to some extent, uh, right? Um, this body was created under Reagan in 1982. And uh, yeah, they're, they're liaising with the National Endowment for Arts, National Endowment for the Humanities and the Institute Museum and Library Services. So as other federal partners and the private sector. So it liaises also in a kind of like with public and private funding, right? Uh, which is also what he's calling for, Jason Frago. He, that's what he's saying. And, and employment uh, and policy, economic policy for the arts. I just think that there was not acknowledgement, I guess, in this article uh, that there could have been an organized body of people that could have fought for these things, but they, uh, they walked out. That, that's true. But I, I think what's great about Jason's article is that he took a much more sober tat than what I've been seeing among a lot of petitions going around, petitions for the Secretary of Arts and Culture, that he brought up the not so distant memory of what happened in the late 80s and early 90s of yes. government involvement in the good. arts. But doesn't he goes back further than that. He goes back to the 60s, right? Or the 50s. Yeah, so there's a couple kind of critical moments. There's the late 80s, Sorry. 90s moment where Robert Maplethorpe and Andre Serrano were very controversial. And I think the worst thing that came out of that, the most extreme thing, a museum director in Cincinnati was put on trial for obscenity for showing Robert Maplethorpe's work, which is something that's almost unthinkable today in mm. culture as it is now. Well, it's unthinkable that it would come in that way, that somebody would be tried for obscenity for showing... Well, in, well, in, the, in the 90s, yeah, in the 90s, it was the, it was like the, the conservative right, and they were, um, and they took this to court on grounds of, uh, is it obscenity or is it art? It was, was what they were, mm -hmm. what the jury had to decide. Yeah, and it was, and it was the moralistic right, and maybe, I know Pam and I have discussed this before, but it was like a racketeering in terms of um, a voting base over trying to win over votes. I definitely arts being policed today, just in a different in a different in way. a very different way and from a different interest group. So it would be unthinkable today for an exhibition to be shut down because it has queer imagery, which is why the Maplethorpe exhibition was in question. Uh, but we already saw the Philip Gustin show was preemptively cancelled. I think it would be less likely today to see a curator, a museum director taken to court on obscenity, but. I, I'm not 100% on that. Thing was I think not, it... But the Gustin were like initiatives from the museum, which also happened in Maplethorpe, right? Like, isn't it uh, Corcoran Gallery? Yeah, so they were supposed to open the show and they were not stopped by government, but they themselves chose not yeah, to have the Corcoran thinked out basically they decided it, yeah they couldn't handle the pressure that was on yeah. them and people really protested them when they canceled there were and, big know, protests so then mm -hmm. it was the cincinnati art center i believe is what it's called um and the the director dennis barry who stuck to his guns and put on the show it was the same show that was supposed to be at the corcoran and dennis barry was then tried for obscenity do you know with, right. the, with the Maplethorpe today, there might even be a question if somebody was to Maplethorpe, a white guy taking pictures, like these very aesthetic stylized pictures of black bodies, there might be a problem over that. I don't know, you know? 
right a problem over like over who's like who's gays or something yeah and this was similar to the problem with justin that you know there's this fear that oh justin was white so can he really deal with issues of racism and the kkk and we don't really want to touch this you brought up the culture wars because he brings it up and he wants to make an important point and i agree with you that he's right on this point which is like do you really want to have art be a pawn in political racketeering right like do you really want that to happen don't we remember and it matters who's in power but that's what happens absolutely we do not want another 90s culture war so then you mentioned he also brings up the wpa the worst programs administration which is an emergency job program right like it's for employment and it's in response to unemployment rates and depression and i mean it's an emergency act and i think that he points this out because the nea is not that also you know it's it's a great society program under lbj and it's uh, optimistic about capital, private capital, and federal money working together. And it's supposed to liaise between the two. And that's what he wants. That's what he thinks that is necessary. That's the model. And in some sense, though, he thinks that FDR did something right, which is put, like, what is it? Like, 8.5 million Americans to work? And he's like, well, so Biden was, like, going to be an FDR-sized presidency, so this is what you can do. And he made the point that if we do something like the WPA, it should not be through grants. It should just be, you're an artist, go make some art somewhere. Here are some basic, basic yeah, guidelines. That was that was interesting, the, the, the bit about that. You just have to prove you're a professional working artist and then you, you know, off you go and you, you were being paid, which is very unlike um, how artists receive money um, today from government yeah because grants necessarily create an ideology of what art is and should be that's enforced so you can apply for a grant as an artist and not get it because it doesn't fit what the federal government or the state government or your local ngo wants to support as art in in the in the original program there were stipulations right as to what one could and couldn't do which he also brings no up nudity no nudity or overt Um, politics i believe it was no nudity or overt politics with an Um, american theme or something later on an american theme yeah um i guess yeah no nudity and you had all the abstract expressionists which i guess yeah no nudity there controversial topic (laughs) (laughs) what a simpler time when nudity was the controversy uh oh i just meant the cia and the abstract an abex. Oh, yes. <laughs> absolutely. But I, I do... Cultural diplomacy, guys. Cultural diplomacy. I mean, that's a component of it, right? Like, the NEA is part of that uh, trajectory. It's like, it's the Cold War, and after Kennedy dies, like, in his honor, like, in homage, they pass all these programs that he had initiated under the New Frontier program, and uh, one of them is the NEA. And it's seen as being part of Cold War diplomacy. You want American excellency on the world stage. You want mm-hmm. excellent 
American art. And not just that, it was individualistic American art because they were creating this image that we have individualism and freedom and capitalism and the Soviets don't have any of that. And the Soviets made it kind of easy because they were doing socialist realism, which mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. pretty crappy mm-hmm. art. And then so, you had American pioneers on the other side of the yeah. avant-garde of abstract expression. But there is yeah. a point about the WPA that I don't want to lose that's very important. A lot of the left today, a lot of the liberal art world, or pretty much all of the liberal art world, has this notion that the WPA is the dream. It's the best thing we can do. It's basically mm. socialism. And it's basically UBI quotes. or something, do you think? Something like that that it's so desirable, that it's the best thing ever. And I want to emphasize that it was not the best thing ever. It was a consolation. It was a way of getting workers in check by getting them employed in this way and limiting protest and discontent and possible revolutionary impulses. It's not, it's not the dream, it's the consolation prize. So we shouldn't hold that up now as the mm-hmm. ideal. Mm-hmm. artists don't have jobs and there's mass unemployment and so he's like the democrats are going to fix it that's what he believes oh that argument is about the democratic party yes i'm saying that the socialists and the wannabe socialists need to listen to the honest liberal argument that he's making that is very pragmatic about what the WPA was and what an equivalent to the WPA could be, as opposed to this kind of utopian imagination that I see far too often in the art world and in the left, that the WPA is this wonderful, great thing, and it's going to make art great again, and the art is going to be fantastic, and we're going to low-key do socialism. It's not that. He makes the argument that it's a very pragmatic stopgap thing in a crisis, and that's exactly what we should see it as. Mm. the question is always who's gonna do it right um and i guess that's that's what brings us to the state management of crisis which he's appealing to the leadership party the democrats who have now inaugurated you know we have our new president uh president joe biden Mm -hmm. and that's what this is about here's how biden can help that's the name of the, the, the title the arts in crisis here's how biden can help um, you know, Jacobin's making their own appeal to Biden, I guess. Everyone's making appeal to Biden these days, right? I'm not making an appeal to Biden. <laughs> yeah, me neither, dog. Well, I think it's, I'm not going to condemn Americans for appealing to the president of the United States to do something effective. I will condemn the quote unquote left for thinking that that has anything to do with left politics. Yeah, Jacobin's ran some really cringe articles recently on on Biden. It's like, Biden, now is our time or something. My concern with the arts is this complete lack of foresight that the anti-Trumpism in the arts was so strong that Trump was the worst possible thing and all the leaders of the art world and the the biggest artists and then kind of trickling down to your little unheard of artists were all focused on we have to get the fascist out of the White House. Mm-hmm. And now they got their guy. They got Biden. And I'm really uncomfortable with a situation where the art world is united in support of the president now I, I, of I'm the United States. I'm actually just worried. States. Yeah, I'm what just worried about expect? all this healing art. I don't want the yeah. healing art. <laughs> I, I don't either. I don't want that healing art either. I want no. art not to be this catharsis. Yeah, exactly. Frago this... is like, art is catharsis, as he puts it. 
and the catharsis comes a cleansing, a clarity, a feeling of relief and understanding that you carry with you out of the theater or, or a concert hall. Art, music, drama, here's a point worth recalling in a pandemic are all instruments of psychic and social health. Come on, dog. Mm. Uh, I should note that Jason Ferrado, I think he really is an honest liberal and really cares about art and criticism. He writes for the New York Times. What do you think he's going to lead with? I oh, just want to okay, make something is... clear that when we talk about things on this uh, episode of uh, SPS, Cesura, I'm not in the business of condemning anyone. We're talking about the article. Like, it is a proposition. We can talk about the article without being like, you know, screw you. What's his name? Jason. Or I, I feel like Platypus is really invested in taking people seriously. So I'm taking him seriously. So in his argument, he made some policy proposals and then kind of backed them up the way you have to back them up, but in a way that I, I can't stand. And I think most people secretly can't stand with these platitudes of art is about healing, art is going to bring us together, art is about our souls, because this is part of the problem with the National Endowment for the Arts and how they handled grants. You have to justify arts use value to government. So you wind up with these things saying art will help us heal the soul of the nation. You can't just say you the should argument pay. argument is about taxpayers' money, right? So the way that yes. this went down with Maplethorpe and Serrano is like, well, if it's offensive to the public, if mm -hmm. it's obscenities and it offends the public opinion, then it should not be They're paying for it or whatever. Right? They're yeah. paying for it. Yeah. Yeah. Art needs to be justified by the people. Mm -hmm. And that is a particular, I guess, uh, formulation of how art, whether or not art should exist, if it agrees with the already existing opinions and uh, temperament of the people. You were telling me about this Joe Rogan episode, and then I watched, I watched what he said about art. I watched um, it. Yeah, he took he's, so mad. he's so <laughs> he mad. He's so mad about the art. mad about it. He's so mad. He's like, this art thinks I'm stupid. Fuck you, art. And he just like he, walks out. He said he like took his kids into this gallery. It was going to be a good time. He saw these wavy walls and he was like, oh, maybe there'll be some stuff hung on these wavy walls. And he was like, that's just it. But I was thinking like maybe like his kids were going to have a good time with the with the walls, but I didn't. I didn't know. But the other thing is he described what made him mad so well that I knew exactly what he was talking about. He was talking about Richard Serra. That was the wavy walls and Larry Bell the thing that he Ooh. said could be an expensive coffee table. So he was really taking it seriously. He knew what he was looking at. He was describing his visual aesthetic experience and yeah. he was so pissed off about it. The kids couldn't touch the art, which I found funny. They were like being told not to touch the art and he was like, God damn it. <laughs> Yeah, he yeah. talked about how he had a, one of his kids on his shoulders. And this guy's like an MMA fighter. He can carry a child on his shoulders. And the security Joe guard... Rogan, his child, like, on his back, walking <laughs> through the Sarah, like, art, yes, give it to me. And then he's like, that's it? <laughs> and the security guard was saying, that's unsafe. You're being unsafe. You can't carry your kid on your shoulders. Mm -hmm. And... One, I wish that people would take art as seriously as Rogan did in those six minutes. He had a serious response to it, which was being pissed off at it. It reminds me of a, a bit in the end of Avant-Garde and Kitsch, uh, when he's talking about the Russian peasant and how, as the way that things are in Russia and everywhere else soon, the peasant finds out that just working all day for a living doesn't allow him enough leisure, energy, and comfort to train for the enjoyment of Picasso, right? Like, mm. 
how do you have free time? Do you have free time and a six-figure education, as Brett Trammell puts it, to like understand this piece of art? Yeah, so this, there's a study that I cite all the time uh, from 1968 that was led by the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, uh, and they published it under the title The Love of Art. So they did essentially exit polling at French public museums, which at the time were totally free and open to the public. They were across the country, not just in, in Paris and the major capitals. And they asked people what they thought of their experience. They asked working class people who went to the museum. And they analyzed all the questionnaires and all of their data. And and what they found was that the working class people went to the museums, they had a sense that they didn't get it, they were kind of mad at it, they were thinking, what is this thing that I'm supposed to have this great and profound experience with, and I don't. And what Bourdieu and his colleagues concluded was that they left with the sense of, oh, and this is why the bourgeoisie is naturally better than me, because they have taste and I don't. I am inferior. Whereas the fact is, in order to have that taste, you have to have all of that free time to learn your art history and cultivate all of that and become a cultured aesthete. Yeah, long live the cultured aesthete. I mean, obviously, you know, this episode is put together by three cultural aesthetes. Yeah, I was just um, thinking that I'm definitely a cultural aesthete. Right? We absolutely are. <laughs> because um, we had the free time and the fancy college degrees, and we learned to appreciate a curvy wall and a mirror-looking coffee table. People will recognize a painting as a work of art on a gallery wall, just like they will if it's in a dumpster. But the same couldn't be said for when Duchamp recontextualized the newly industrially made objects of his time. He showed that if you put a urinal in a gallery, it can become art, which begged the question, what can you do outside of a gallery? Situationists took all of public life as a stage for intervention. Early video artists showed their work on public access TV. Performance artists blended into the conventions of being in public. But as time went on, these once radical techniques of blurring the lines between art and everyday life became the norms taught to every art student, which pop culture then made the public aware of. If you're walking through New York and see some person on the street half naked with face paint and a balloon animal on their dick, you probably don't think, wow, what could this alien creature possibly be doing here? You just shrug and take a picture of the wacky performance artist and move on. These gestures no longer pierce the veil of everyday life because at this stage in history, they've come to preemptively carry art's context with them like paintings did before. This century-old tradition of blurring the lines between art and life is the one I've been unoriginally simping for by creating viral images that wind up provoking the question, is this real? So, I suggest that now we can put the Democrats behind mm -hmm. and move on, you know, from the Biden presidency. Our uh, next four years will be interesting. Trump will probably beat the impeachment and then who knows what will happen. So we can talk about art now because I'm so tired, guys. I'm so tired about 
I'm so so tired, tired. talking about Democrats. I'm too yeah, tired. So let's let's pull up Brad Schmel's time. Well, I was just thinking if we were just talking about Joe Rogan, right? So I've got a segue. Yeah. I know that Brad Trammell, he I recently watched a, a YouTube video of him giving his personal statement. He gave it via this YouTube video. He has like a bee in his bonnet. You know, he's like he's discontent with contemporary art, with the with the zombie formalism. I guess that's like that's old stuff now. But you know, he's discontent with the kooky ceramics the the paint the abstract paintings he said and he and so he says that rich that art is controlled by rich billionaires and and they control what good art is by what they what by what they buy which then reperpetuates people making that kind of work and um and he's saying it doesn't hit it doesn't art doesn't actually reach the people or something this is the argument he's making and so he's decided to take up using instagram as a platform for his art right um, his meme art, so he can reach reach the masses or reach people people who are unsuspecting that it's even art. So they kind of encounter it. Populist, and populist yeah, they, art, as he yes. calls it. And they're like, "What is this?" But they don't know it's art or something because it doesn't necessarily look like a kooky ceramic. And in that way, he might get them um, to engage with it. This is what he says. Yeah, yeah, yeah I yeah, think yeah. he makes a really good argument, and he's right that the general public, just from a populist perspective, is kind of rightfully hates art. We, we haven't given them a lot of good reasons to love it in the past 50 years, uh, which is a whole thing about the avant-garde trying to destroy art in order to liberate art and that it made art incomprehensible, but that, that's another podcast. Um, but I, I disagree with him, or maybe it's more complex than he presents it on the idea is it that another art... Well, to put it very briefly, starting, let's say, with Duchamp in the early 20th century, art in its progress, in, in its, not progress, its process to attain its own concept, to kind of, in its own imagination, take away all the frivolities. So, like, does it have to be a, does it have to be a picture? Does it have to be realistic? Does it have to even be a painting? What does it have to be? Maybe let's a make wheel. it a, yeah. yeah, let's make it a urinal. And then you get a Alan stool. Capro who comes along in the 50s and says, let's, it doesn't even have to be a thing. Let's just dance around and it's going to be a happening. And all of this is driven by what they saw as a utopian impulse to take art out of this high-minded, unattainable bourgeois zone and make it part of everyday life. That was a term that, that gets thrown around a lot with this kind of thing and make it real and accessible and meaningful. But in so doing, they really shot themselves in the foot because if you don't have an art education, if you haven't spent four years of undergrad learning the history of art and you see a slide in the new museum, that's a Karsten Holler show a few years ago that I love to use mm -hmm. as my strong it was at the man because here it's in London. <laughs> just so good. And you see a slide in the new museum and you don't have all that years and years of education and you haven't read all these stupid books. You would say, I could just go to a fucking playground. To know art and to appreciate art requires leisure time, education, and according to Brad Trammell, a six-figure tuition in art school. I just want to push back on that. There's the, the author who's on the uh, Plus Plus Art and Politics reading group. Susan Buck Morris, and she she makes the argument the that um, she's historically predicating her argument as to why art that might provide the concerns of artists might be pushed underground, and and you know there's like the rise of academic art and things. It's all historically situated, and her article will link it, and and so that 
um, she's saying that maybe aesthetic experience would appear through the the culture industry, um, through people working in the production of visual cultures. I don't mean visual cultures like the academic study. People go to the cinema and they see films and I don't know, I'm just suspect yeah. of the total argument that people, they can't have an experience themselves. Yeah. yeah. And so that you, like, you need to host host it for them in an unsuspecting way. Or, like, I don't know. I'm just a little bit suspect of that, of that argument. I think that that's right. I think that that's actually, that suspicion is right. Because what you were saying, Alison, about Joe Rogan walking in and then walking out, right, meant that he had an experience with the art. Mm-hmm. And he thought that it mocked him, that it was like making fun of him. But he didn't know enough. Yeah. I think, though, that nobody needs an education to see a Manet painting or a Caravaggio painting or, you know, if we kind of go back before the the crux of modernism, to use Hal Foster's term, which happened in, in the middle 20th century, you don't need a ton of education to see that and think something about it and have an experience with it and like it. The same way that Rodin didn't need an art education to be really pissed off at Richard Serra and Larry Bell for mocking him. But once you hit that crux of modernism, once you get past Alan Capro and the minimalist turn, once you get past the moment in history where art is about looking and enjoying and having an aesthetic experience, that's when you need all the education to appreciate it. If I say, actually, this Larry Bell artwork is a really great artwork, I'm going to have to quote you a bunch of theory and a bunch of art history, and I'm going to have to explain why it's Maybe good. it's just bad art. Well, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't want to romanticize it on the other side. And there is some, there is like this critical recognition of art that kind of requires this education to be able to maybe speak about it critically and put it in a historical perspective on the part of a critic. You're talking about experience though, which I agree with you that you don't need the degrees, even if it were to be this obscure conceptual work to have an experience with the art. I think that everyone, despite having uh, not having an education or whatever, like does experience the work if they go to the museum. First of all, they've taken themselves to the museum mm-hmm, mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. explicitly make themselves available for the experience of art. So it's not a critical experience, or maybe it is, you know, I have no mm-hmm. idea, but, but- It's funny, this came up on the Art and Politics reading group, this anecdote. We were talking about Monet, cinematic um, water lilies that are on display in France. I forget where I've not seen them. It sounds great. Yes. And it came up that, um, you know, people like my mom or something might go see them and be like, oh, they're very nice. You know, they were very, they were nice. And then I think it was Richard, who was, um, who's a member of the Purpose Affiliated Society. He, he was like, but you know, they, if you look at the, the brush strokes and the way they're constructed, they're very violent. So there's a, a repression going on there on the side of this kind of like chocolate box painting in like an unconscious repression maybe but there's still there's an aesthetic experience happening yeah I just thought it was funny perhaps your mom when she says they're very nice that's part of what goes into her saying that she might not be fully aware of that but that's part of the aesthetic experience and I mean just go to the orangery I wanted to link us back from Rogan to Brad Trammell because I guess the argument with Trammell is that art has separated so much from the public right that you need to bring it back through this like populist approach to the people. So he makes this kind of meme propaganda mm-hmm. type of aesthetic, conceptual, political. Well, he says it rides off the back of woke capitalism being a beautiful oxymoron. And this is his kind of thing that he works with. 
in mm-hmm. through his through his memes and i was thinking about the the bringing it to the people you could also take it back to the the situationist international which was founded in 1957 making critique of mid-century capitalism and bringing authentic desires and liberation of the everyday taking to the streets you know i'm not a historian on the situationist but i think it, you can tie it back to this this moment as well and the left yeah i think that's a great comparison that he is taking it to the streets in effect um through instagram yeah. so i think he became most famous for his fake joe biden ad so for those just listening there's a photo of joe biden looking nice and friendly in a polo shirt and he uses the biden campaign font and logo and the text reads his brain question mark no his heart um and heart is emphasized in red (laughs) and what was very funny and what makes this very effective i think is that it was picked up as if it were real and people started sharing it in support of Biden. I believe it was the Biden campaign who came out first and said the Trump campaign created this to burn us. And the Trump campaign said, we didn't do this, but it's hilarious. So They shared it first. Yeah, the Trump campaign shared it. Oh, the Trump campaign shared it first. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then Biden was like, the Biden people were like, what the fuck? And they just hunted it down. You know, they were taking people's accounts down from Instagram. They were suspending people for sharing it. And still, if you look at Brad Trammell's Instagram today, because I took these screenshots that I'm sharing with you today, you have to click through a warning that says this is false information. So Instagram is protecting us. Well, of course, today, Biden just got inaugurated. Um, (laughs) I mean, this is just going to be the new normal now, man. I think that Brad Trammell really hit on something here that People actually did share it in earnest in support of Biden. People shared it mocking Biden. It really, it tread that line of, is this real? Which I think is Brad Trammell's primary concern in his work. Wants people to say that, right? He's like, he's he likes that it could be real and that people stop to consider reality. That's what his argument is that it makes people reflect on what's real and that's the sweet spot as he puts it that he's trying to hit encourage the discussion of reality and the limits of reality with other people and that's what he feels tasked to do as an artist so the aesthetic is part of a kind of trickster move right Mm. that it's like could fit in or not it's got like a little bit of a gotcha in it you know i really liked what tramel had to say about his own art I thought that it was like smart. I um, appreciated, you know, I'm like signed up for his Patreon to see the videos of him talking about his art. And I found it a lot smarter than I had expected, to be honest, because I thought that he was more like cynical and doing this kind of irony stuff. And he's not, he's like super sincere. He's like very earnest in his attempt to try to do something. Now, whether that it's doing the thing that he thinks it's doing and whether or not like that becomes a criteria for good art that's the question i have to say i'm kind of ambivalent about this work i don't feel like i appreciate it as a work of art so much as a kind of intervention in social media by a provocateur of some sort i guess yeah Mm. i think it succeeds for me so much in that space of is it real 
And the problem with it for me is the same that then I find out it's not quote unquote real. And I think, wow, that was really smart, Brad Tramiel. You had a really good idea and you really nailed it. But that's kind of the end of my aesthetic experience with it. Whereas, you know, I'll reference Manet again because he's probably my favorite painter of all time. I'm never done with a Manet painting. There's no moment when I can say, oh, I got the joke. Okay, I get it. I, I can go back to his paintings for the rest of my life and we'll always have that experience with it. It's never used up. Do you guys think that this is just like kind of a provocateur, like social media kitsch? Because it's taking up the meme form, right? Which has this universal kind of language. They actually remind me of coming from this situationist history and then maybe into the 80s. And I, and then I was thinking that the, the Trammell kind of remind me of somebody like Jenny Holzer. Yeah. Or um, oh, yeah. or even like Barbara Kruger, this kind of yeah. thing, where it's where it's this abdication, but also an affirmation of existing culture. And I know he's he's a different artist to this, and he would approach the the current situation differently as well to how they would. But there, but I I could just feel like I feel this in his works, which I think you've touched on as well, Alison. That it's kind of like aha, and you know sometimes they make me chuckle. Um, yeah. yeah, Barbara Kruger is an is a great connection. I hadn't thought of that, that she appropriated the imagery of advertising for her mm. work. And what's really yeah. fascinating with Barbara Kruder is that her signature aesthetic has now been appropriated by the brand Supreme. She willingly yeah. had it appropriated. So there was like Selfridges, which is a big posh department store in London. And um, they had her works. They were running a sale and they got her to do the branding for it. And I, I think she was in on it, unless I'm wrong. But yeah, they had all of her posters with like big sales signs up and it was artwork she had made for Selfridges yeah I didn't know about that bit but I think it's straight that her work went from appropriating advertising to kind of going back into that ecosystem like it had its full life cycle um, mm -hmm. that is a mm -hmm. good comparison with what Brad Jamal is trying to do I was trying to give his work a history and um I think that it's also because um there's this text that is really prominent because he he is not only just imitating an aesthetic but he's imitating like a point of view, like a perspective, you know, like he calls it liberal cringe, like nuclear liberal break, cringe shit posting. Liberal <laughs> cringe. That's what he calls it. And he is taking up that voice and just pushing the contradictions. That's what he considers mm -hmm. that he needs to have an internal contradiction. Means and ends must betray each other, he said. Right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, he's done posts or works. I guess I'll call them works. His works take the form of posts. Things like normalized corporate pronouns, things like that, kind of jamming together these languages in yeah. ways that... Ryan, Ryan Long, the comedian, does this mm -hmm. kind of normalizing corporate pronouns kind of shtick. Yeah, it can be funny. It's this means and reversal that makes it funny as well. Yeah, like he's big on talking about neoliberalism, like that's the moment, and that if art should have an open reflection uh, relationship to reality, that that's his that's his way, and the cringe liberal. I mean, there's different names for it, right? It's like neoliberal propaganda, nuclear grade liberal cringe, woke capitalism right? Just like neoliberalism. This is like, he calls it these different things and that he wants to take up this voice and aesthetic and put it back into the system so people can think about like how they've just kind of accepted or 
I guess like that part is the part that I'm like, but is it, you know, I mean, I feel like you're in the club if you know what Tramel's doing. I don't know. Maybe he's just more optimistic about his audience. Maybe he really feels like that is just, like, he wants to wake people up. Do you think so? I don't know. I, his, I, I imagine does. his audience is Zoomers, right? Like Zoomer kids that are, that are in, because I have to, I have to really look at a meme. I'm like, I'm freaking old. I have to look at it and then I have to think about it and then I have to then go away old. for a little bit and come, I'm not that old and then come back to it and look at it again. <laughs> and then I get well, meme migraines anyway. <laughs> that's a thing now. Yes, he does kind of want to wake people up. Um, Sophia, you brought up Ryan Lawn, who I think kind of wants to wake people up in the same way, except I don't think that Ryan Lawn has an agenda the way that Brad Trammell does. I think Brad Trammell kind of has a political agenda with this. Like he wants to demystify this stuff, whereas Ryan Lawn just wants to be funny. And wants to start it up. <laughs> uh, so for those who aren't familiar, Ryan Lawn is probably best known for a video that he made in the summer of 2020, where there's one character wearing a shirt that says racist and another character wearing a shirt that says woke. And they find that they agree on a great number it's of things it. and <laughs> become best friends. When me and Brad first met, I didn't think we'd get along, but turns out we kind of agree on everything. Your, Your racial, racial identity, identity is the most important thing. thing. Everything should be looked at through the lens of race. race. Jinx, you owe me a Coke. Damn. We both have a lot of opinions about people of color, even though we barely know any. I say colored people, but as long as we're classifying them. And it, it's First very good. <laughs> and, and he really shows the racism of wokeness. I think that that's kind of the wake up there. But I think he's really just trying to be funny and it's hilarious and it's... it's but it does, it's very comedian. much like this, isn't it? I mean, it sounds like, I don't know what you mean by political agenda with Trammell. I mean, I think you know, I don't know. I, I actually question this all the time. I, I just thought, you know, because he's anti Joe Biden or is he anti like neoliberal capitalist? Or is he can the Democrats do better? I don't know. I don't know. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But that's fine. Like, I don't have to know that to like look at the art. You know, well, actually, that's to his credit that we don't know. And perhaps undermines, maybe I'm wrong when I said mm. that he has an agenda. Um, so maybe we should say Ryan Lawn's agenda is to be funny and Brad yeah, Trammell's agenda like... is to make art. And I think I... those are both really great agendas. There's, I felt like, I felt, I don't know, I can't remember how it goes. There's one um, Brad Trammell where he has a pussy hat on and I felt like, I I, I have I don't know I don't have a stake in this but I, I feel like he's leaning towards like he's just a discontented Democrat but I... yeah I think that's kind of the default for some of the stuff but you know I think that he uh, is trying to deal with a problem in art somehow through art is yeah that... he, he's recognizing a discontent and he's like he's recognizing what am I gonna a do? problem yeah he's recognizing a problem but yeah. Brad, if you want to come on the podcast and talk about your... Yeah, you should defend yourself, man. Um, Yeah, it would be another matter if his audience was people who aren't frustrated art world aesthetes and they were just people who found him on Instagram, maybe that's But I guess like that's, what, that's why he felt the the poster or the, the post of Joe Biden with the not his brain, his heart was successful because he was like oh this like went viral mm -hmm. that that's i think that for him is the level of like it happened for me like the is this real moment happened because it went viral the trump campaign shared it the biden campaign shared it it became this moment some kind of rupture of the real i don't know like that's the formulation that 
seems to sound a little that bit. That would go back to situationism as well, I guess. Yeah. It also mm -hmm. has a bit of like the Fisher kind of like sensibility, Mark Fisher sensibility, right? And um, using social media also fits in that kind of conception of interrupting the real, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. I'd be really curious what he has to say about it. I actually think mm -hmm. he might have like a smart, smart things to say about it. That would be I think fantastic. He, I think he, he, he runs a, some kind of program, but it's outside of the academy that you can pay to take his courses or something like this, I think. Mm. Anyway. Go it's ahead. on Patreon. It's on Patreon. It's like tier 17. Um, exactly. <laughs> you should find out more about Suzura, find out more about Platypus online. We'll link all of the uh, works that we've talked about mm. on the Suzura website and all of the article links on the episode description. Right, Tramel, you have an open invitation to come. Open to invitation. Podcast. All right, guys, thank you so much. We hope that you've enjoyed it and uh, talk to you guys soon. Bye bye. Bye, everyone. <laughs> cool. Bye. been a production of the platypus affiliated society featuring original music by tamash Vilagi. platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups public fora research and journalism focused on the problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication, The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of The Platypus Review and panel recordings, visit us online at platypus1917.org. All of our activities are currently online. You can find coffee breaks, reading groups, etc. at platypus1917.org slash virtual. See ya!